0: Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. John Hunt is one of the most awarded advertising creatives of all time. In 1983, he co-founded the agency Hunt Laskaris out of South Africa with the goal to put the continent on the creative map. Four decades later, the agency, now part of TBWA, is the most awarded of all time, gaining international fame for political risky and rebellious work. In this episode, Hunt chats about his career, which includes working with Nelson Mandela on his first ANC election campaign and creating the most awarded campaign of all time for the Zimbabwean newspaper. I'm Alison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hello, John. How are you today?
1: Hi, looking pretty good. Thanks. And you?
0: I'm good. I am very excited to be chatting with you. You are currently sitting in Johannesburg, South Africa. I am sitting in New York City. Obviously, you have a legendary career in advertising. Tell me about how you got to where you are today, in sort of like a brief a brief overview.
1: <laughs> well, it started, I suppose, the the real journey in um, eighty three when I co founded uh, Huntless Gares, um in South Africa. We had two very simple, uh, I guess, touchstone phrases. The one was, life's too short to be mediocre. And the other was that we wanted to be the first world-class agency out of Africa. And that really formed everything. We tried to um, immediately be kind of world-class, whatever that means. And uh, we tried to attract people who who were of a similar mindset Um, First five years were hard work and then um, we put a mouse on a steering wheel for BMW and that kind of changed everything and we started doing global work for BMW. Um, We won lots of local and then global awards. Um, South Africa was going through a huge tumultuous time. Uh, we We were asked to do the first Nelson Mandela election campaign ushered South Africa into its um, warm clasp of uh, democracy. Uh, then we tangled up with uh, TBWA in the best sense. And um, about 2003, I became the global creative director for TBWA, moved to New York for a couple of years, came back to South Africa with the same job. Um, but really, uh, have had a wonderful run of trying to, um, not always me, but try and harness the creativity that was in Huntless scars and then TBWA. So I've always loved um, taking people with me. And uh, here I am, you know, uh, quite a few years later, still thankfully enjoying myself.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that you um, have succeeded in your ambition to be a globally recognized world-class agency out of South Africa, but I'm assuming when you started, that wasn't necessarily so easy, right? So what, how did you, when you were first starting out, how did you get your work noticed? I know BMW, some iconic campaigns you did were a big part of that, but how did you really gain global recognition?
1: You know, it's kind of interesting. Um, the first thing was we employed the right, wrong people. Um, and by that, I mean, we employed people who I said had a positive chip on their shoulder. So they weren't necessarily, uh, if you looked at their CV, the exact um, perfect kind of cookie cutter, oh, that person's a great creative, but we employed for hunger. And strangely enough, um, that converted straight to very iconic work. And the iconic work we, we then sort of said, by your fruits, you shall be known. And um, that became the, the sort of the, the mantra. If, if the work wasn't good enough, the people weren't good enough rather than the other way around. And um, people came knocking and then eventually, you know, globally we were, were noticed and globally we started winning, you know, at Cannes and one show and, and whatever. And it's kind of interesting. You have to believe it before it's true. But if you have persistence and a little bit of grit, um, then that becomes your culture. And that culture was honestly what made us, you know, globally noticed.
0: Mm. So Huntless Garrus was named Agency of the Century, which I didn't even know was a thing Uh that you could be named.
1: It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> agency of the decade uh most awarded agency ever, I think I don't I don't know if I need to be fact checked there, but I think I'm right
1: that was for yeah for for the Zimbabwean campaign,
0: yes, so talk about like what sort of led to your notoriety and like your sort of global influence at these at these award shows um, I think you know, working in South Africa during the time that you did probably had a lot to do with it. But I guess talk about sort of like the context in which the agency was coming up and how that impacted your influence on the rest of the creative industry.
1: So um, it's almost in two halves. The 80s and 90s were the horrible times of apartheid in South Africa. And we were kind of the the naughty boys on the block or naughty boys and girls on the block. We were very... Um, We we did work that was extremely sort of, um, we took the mickey out of uh, the state of the nation in South Africa. There was a brand called Nando's Spicy Chicken. It's a global brand now, um, which absolutely lambasted the government, the state of the nation in South Africa. Um, So we became known as that sort of uh, cheeky, irreverent, um, brand, which spread across, you know, whether we did banking or motor cars or whatever, we seem to always um, cock a snoot at the status quo. And once you become the anti-status quo, you attract a certain kind of client who's happy to take risks. And that really led us in the, the dark days of apartheid to having a very iconic positioning. Then after um, democracy, it was terrific. We surfed that wave for many, many years, because now we were in sort of the right spot at the right time, and people referred to us as, you know, the guys who um, were challenging the status quo. Status quo when it was wrong, and now that things were a little more to rights, we still continued that way. And I've always had a, a feeling that the agencies that do well are those who aren't bullied by the status quo, um, and the ones that tend to be in that sea of sameness are very appropriate. Um, but yeah, they, I don't know, is appropriate enough, you know, ever in marketing or advertising? I think not.
0: Mm. So you sort of established yourself as this irreverent risk-taking agency. And then at some point TBWA comes knocking, right? And, um, you get acquired and, and join the group. How do you maintain that unique culture, that irreverence as part of a bigger network?
1: I'm not sure we would have if it wasn't TVWA. I think a few other networks might have, you know, been a little more corporate in their point of view. We were very clear with TVWA, and they were very clear with us, by the way, that they wanted us to affect the network as much as the network might affect us. They were keen on our cockiness, if I can put it that way. <laughs> and if you remember in those days um, – TBD was the smallest, youngest of the so-called international networks. And they were putting together a really interesting um, group. So we came together more or less at the same time as they bought Chai Day. Um, and we had an immediate connection, myself and Lee. Um, and then there was uh, London purchases, a guy called Tripit Beatty, who was the, the ECD there. And we were kind of more, as we call ourselves now, collective, as opposed to one of those sort of, um, you know, from now on, all your carpets will be the same color and this is how you dress and order. So we were a little rebellious as a group, as well as individuals. And I think that helped us enormously, you know, absorb into TBWA, but also maybe affect a bit of TBWA's point of view as well.
0: Mm. You worked with Nelson Mandela, which is amazing. Talk about what it was like working for him on his campaign. And what did you learn from him that you've sort of taken with you in your life, in your career?
1: So the the first big learning, it kind of sounds strange to say it now, but mostly when you first meet um, supposedly, you know, famous people, they're honestly a bit of a letdown because they're sort of, call it their media fame, doesn't match their, you know, real... Uh, personality. And um, with Nelson Mandela, the opposite was true. You know, you he was actually even more impressive, uh, more full of integrity, more humble um, in person than he was as a sort of a media icon. So the first thing, you know, I learned was that you don't have to be the, you know, the huge ego, you know, there's a lot of sort of leadership now that seems to be um, predicated on, you know, strong man or strong woman and, you know, tough ego. And he was the opposite. Um, so people wanted to follow him as opposed to um, him demanding, you know, you you watch this line. His ability to bring people together as opposed to be der- derisive was incredible. Because you have to remember at that time, we would have meetings with Um, a lot of people had every right to be absolutely furious. And, you know, he would say again and again, if we base the future on the past, we're not going to get anywhere. So um, the ability to uh, not compromise in the negative sense of the word, but the ability to bring people to a center and then act on it was probably the the single biggest learning of that it just swept through your body. It wasn't even an intellectual thing. It was an emotional thing that you just, wow, you're dealing with someone very, very unique now. And um, we were honored to just sort of be in his presence, not because he was acting like a big cheese, but just because he was so humble.
0: Mm. What was it like for the agency? Obviously you were taking a lot of Risky positions, I guess, like working with Mandela, calling out the government. What about you and what about the culture made you want to take those risks and feel safe and secure in taking those risks?
1: It's kind of weird because uh, that would be like 92, 93. South Africa was, you know, almost literally in in flames and no one knew exactly what was going to happen. So um, we had bomb threats in the agency. I was followed, my phone was tapped. You could always tell in those days it got like a tinny um, resonance to, to the voice on the other side. Um, we had to build a, a fence around the the agency. Uh, but, you know, it sounds slightly heroic. It's At the time, you just go one day after the other. You're just in the middle of the eye of a storm and you go. So in retrospect, it sounds, you know, big big deal but it. it you just carried on. Um, everyone was then, you know, committed to it. the cause. We worked. I think we we're the first agency ever to have a uh, work through them. So we had a, a six to six shift in the in through the day, and then a six to six in right through the night. Because in those days, for some weird reason, TV wasn't the uh, wasn't allowed in the election campaign. So it was print. But print moved and radio moved on its own clock. Uh, to keep it current, we had to work 24 hours out of 24. So it was pretty exhausting. But in the end, you know, it was, you know, what a wonderful, I was invited to the inauguration um, in Pretoria, which is the, the capital of South Africa. And there we saw in our own eyes, you know, the world, every single important president, uh, celebrity, whatever, came to that inauguration and um, it's still, you know, one of you know, the best days of my life.
0: Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, it kind of remind it, it kind of makes me think of like, I've, I've spoken to a few agencies in Ukraine right now who are just kind of heads down working through trying to fight misinformation, just carrying on, as you say. And it's really, it's always fascinating to me how you can work in advertising and think, oh, I'm just selling, you know, toilet paper or whatever. But no, it can be really, really important and have political implications. So I just find that fascinating. Obviously, this kind of context leads to the Zimbabwe newspaper campaign. Talk a little bit about that. Most awarded campaign of all time. Uh, what did you do there and how did it break through?
1: Well, there's a classic case of, you know, sometimes things are deeply strategic and sometimes they just happen. We had the meeting with the client, and he said, you know, not only do I not have any budget, so I can't pay you, but if I did, it would be worth nothing because the Zimbabwean dollar isn't worth the paper it's printed on. So he then left, and we were all sort of looking at each other with a kind of what the hell, you know, kind of jump out the window, just mission impossible. But that phrase, it's not worth the money it's written on, Um, led us to the idea almost immediately of why don't we use the physical notes, which with hyperinflation, you know, there there were literally $2 trillion notes that were worth about, you know, 10 American cents. Um, So we then bought up ridiculously, um, I think a a bag of Zimbabwean dollars, a a rubbish bag, uh, cost about, 10 South African rand, which is about 50 American cents. And we used that as, as the actual, um, the money itself was the the idea. And it just took off instantly. Um, we did one billboard uh, down the road in Johannesburg. I came down, uh, walked into the office the next day, and a friend from Sweden said, you know, cool billboard. It had gone viral just because people took pictures of it. And, you know, it was uh, just one of those wonderful campaigns that were actually almost—I describe it as instant combustion. Uh, it got a life of its own and ran away. Um, we read when we we package it, we try to be a little more strategic. But in truth, it was just a great idea that caught fire immediately.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious. I mean, looking back on these different campaigns you worked on, obviously the the media ecosystem, the creative the job of a creative has changed a lot since then, right? The way that creative needs to be put out into the world to make an impact. But some of these like these ideas that you're talking about, they would still resonate today. So talk about like, for you, how has creativity in your opinion changed over time and what remains the same? And I guess, how have you and the agency adapted to keep up?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a very, uh, multifaceted question. I think s- some things stay the same in the sense of if you have a, a great core, core idea, it has a greater chance of, um, exploding and, and, and moving out. What's definitely different now is the, the lack of almost a linear process. So maybe before it was a kind of, you know, a little tree and you created a, some kind of trunk and then the branches went off. Now, you know, it's this happy growing bush and you sometimes don't really know uh, which is which part of the campaign is going to catch fire or not. Um, so much of it depends on these days, you know, on social media. Um, I, I think not to be uh, scared of any of this, you know, we have a phrase here, sort of, um, you know, surf the wave, don't get dumped by it. I think the more you are open-minded, you still need talent, but this nimbleness, this idea to pick something up and, and just run with it. Of course, you need a client who also has that nimbleness with you. But um, we're, we're much more of a, a team sport in our creativity. Uh, we used to be a little bit more, hey, they're a great team art director, copywriter, or ECD. I think now it's um, much more of a, of this team working together and this bit works and this bit don't. You know, I'm not a, I think, strat, account manager, whoever can come up with the idea and then how you feed it to the media uh, depends entirely on what that idea is. Uh, so the vacuum-packed world of, you know, three steps to doing a great campaign just ain't there anymore. But mm-hmm. it also gives you a bigger sandpit because absolutely everything is your um, medium. Uh, so not to be scared of that um, allows you to probably play, you know, the cliche of, you know, everything is a brand experience. Um, it, it's a cliche, but it's it's kind of true.
0: Yeah. So at, how does that kind of change? Like you've been a creative leader, chief creative officer, creative chairman. Yeah in creative leadership positions for a long time how do you think this new paradigm this this need to work more closely with other disciplines and be agile and nimble how is that impacting both the creative department and the role of the cco
1: yeah well probably the, the best way to to answer is to give you a you know an example um, 2 3 years ago we did a, a campaign for joburg ballet which you know ballet has to be the more sort of um, Formularized, institutionalized, some might say, you know, old fashioned art form. Um, again, it was a little bit like the Zimbabwe example, you know, scratching your head because the brief was can you take ballet to a new generation um, of people, you know, millenniums, Gen Z, whatever? I mean, I hate using those terms, but those sort of people ain't interested or weren't interested in, you know, going to the theater and, and watching Swan Lake. Um, strangely enough, we immediately brought in a whole group of, of people and worked out what happens if we have bite-sized ballets, we called, ended up calling it breaking ballet. And we would take real live news moments. Um, there was a drought in Cape Town, there was a big boxing match on uh, one of the biggest issues, you know, gender-based violence. And they were trending topics of that week, and what trended on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we made a ballet film on Tuesday and Friday, and it ran on Saturday, Sunday and the next week. So suddenly people were going onto their various media platforms to see the ballet of the week that was performing arts that, um, you know, celebrated or brought into your um, domain Um, a a, a trending topic expressed through dance. To do that, you know, it was just ridiculous. We had to have film crews on standby. We had to have, you know, who's monitoring the trending topics. But because there was no ego and it was the system of it's a team sport, um, we managed to pull that off. It was a fantastic success, wonderful um, story. But there were no mighty egos saying, well, actually, it's my idea. It was our idea executed through that lens. So that, to me, is a, a good totem of how creat- creativity has changed and how it manifests itself in still glorious work, as opposed to that sort of um, sometimes work gets dumbed down because people are involved to a sort of you know lowest common denominator. This actually pushed the work up to an incredibly high level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think. Ego is something that comes up a lot in, in terms of like creative leadership. Do you feel like today that gets in the way of great work?
1: I, I think a degree of ego as in um, somebody being in charge and aligning different, is fine. That massive individual ego that blocks the door, um, you know, I don't think works anymore if it ever did. Um, and the idea of being, um, you know, often those big, make, makes the people working with you fearful. And um, I've, I've never, ever seen fear work as a great motivator for, for terrific work. Helps sometimes with the odd deadline, but, um, <laughs> I think uh, if you, if you work as a, as a, a happy team, um, not only is the work better, weirdly enough, it's more efficient. You get work done quicker.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Well, to that point, I mean, just about sort of removing the the one perspective and and moving towards sort of the many. DE and I has is a huge topic today in business, uh, particularly in advertising. I'm curious how your experience uh, working through apartheid, working in South Africa at such a fraught time. Has shaped your perspective on DEI and diverse talent. Um, I think every market kind of has its own conversation about this, unique to the market that they're in. Um, but I think it's in, it's important globally, right? So, how do you kind of how has your perspective been shaped by your work in the past?
1: Um, so, a couple of things. First of all, the stereotypes don't exist. So um, that's a good thing to get out of the way because people, <laughs> even if it's you know, so-called bias, um, and that's on, on any level, um, whether you're talking, you know, gender, nationality, um, rich, poor, whatever, um, I, I, the, the stereotypes for me are nonsense and always have been. I think Diversity, I uh, wrote a book called The Art of the Idea, and I said in one of the chapters, you know, hug diversity and it'll, you know, really hug you back. But you mustn't do diversity light. You know, diversity light is that sort of, yeah, you know, this this should look okay. Um, I think that's very, very destructive. Um, and it I have to be careful. While you do need, you know, Quotas and measurements, and because that monitors how are you doing, um, you shouldn't be doing it for that reason. You should be doing it a, because it's the right thing. But much more importantly, you get better work. Um, you know, I've done many, 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 many. We, we call them you know swats, where you bring people in um, from different countries, different disciplines to to work on a big campaign. The fact that everyone is different, um, different backgrounds, different points of view, it's got to create a better end product. Um, so I'm very wary of what I call, you know, the country club diversity where um, everyone's really the same uh, and they play footsie-footsie with each other, um, but th- it's not genuine. Um so, diversity is, is, is something to be embraced, not not because someone says so, because it's actually common sense. And you, you know, it just works on on every level. Um, you get a, a better product. So, you know, do it because it's the right thing, but also do it because it's the smart thing.
0: Well, what is so, genuine? Does that make like sense? What? It does, it does, and it's definitely true. But what is genuine? commitment to diversity look like?
1: You know, again, difficult, you know, I get weary of, of pie charts and and diagrams. You have to feel it. It, It's something that, um, is either real or, or not. Um, and I don't think there's an ability to, um, Camouflage that uh, you you can feel in an organization, in a person, in a group meeting, if um, there is genuine acceptance, genuine whatever, um, and that's where it starts. Then all the other mechanisms, fine, you know that that, that works too, um, but people need to to understand it from a, a deeper point of view that this is. Um, in every sense it's the it's the right and smart thing to do. Um and it it's not done um because you have to. You know, then you get all these little edges. Um we have such great success stories of of you know diverse groups, particularly in the creative re- arena. Um so you know, just do it. It's you know I, I don't, un, I don't understand why it's a debate. I mean, I, of course I understand I just don't understand why there's any pushback. doesn't right. make any sense.
0: Like why don't people seem to be understanding the obvious?
1: <laughs> I really, you know, kind of weird.
0: You are being inducted into the One Club Creative Hall of Fame this year. So congratulations. Very well deserved. You. Um, as you kind of, gear up to accept this big award. What, looking back on your career, what are you most proud of? What are you most, what makes you smile? What makes you the most sort of happy about where your career has gone?
1: Well, you know, find great campaigns and, you know, growth both in business and, and in, in a kind of personal capacity. But what really makes me smile the most is um, over the period A lot of people who I have worked with um, have grown enormously um, up and maybe past me, you know, just we have a huge number of alumni from particularly South Africa, but also from my time in New York, where we started a thing called the Young Bloods program, which coming back now. So my joy comes from seeing a lot of people who've worked with me and in the broader environment, um, just grow, grow, grow. And that's the kick I get when um, someone used to be a, a junior copywriter and now they're running either their own agency in New York or, you know, big cheese with um, some global client. Uh, that's that's the, the joy. Um, I love seeing that kind of growth. That's what puts the biggest smile on my face.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for creatives today looking to make a big career in advertising
1: um, certainly to to be yourself um, to um, the more you know who you are i think you know that's very helpful i still go back to the point i made right at the beginning of having a positive chip on your shoulder i think you need hunger i think you need a little bit of you know, grit. um, And perseverance um, sounds almost, you know, biblical and I shall have perseverance. I think you you need some of that old old school stuff. I think it still stands you um, in good stead. And absolutely, you need the talent. But my view very strongly is you need to be open minded, um because the next five years, you know, if we were having this discussion in five years time, the you know, ad land, comms, marketing, whatever you want to call it, will have changed dramatically. And those who are open-minded about that um, will be nimble to do a little bit of gymnastics to, you know, um, oil their way through those changes. Um, so uh, be hungry, be open-minded, and I suspect the rest will look after itself.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, for chatting chatting with me today.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invite.
0: That's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Campaign Chemistry on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.